welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. And this morning we're going to start a series that's going to run over the next few weeks. Um, We've just obviously concluded our Easter celebrations. Um, The next event of note on the church calendar is, of course, the day of Pentecost, the coming of the promised Holy Spirit to the disciples as they waited in that upper room. And we felt it would be really apt if over the next few weeks, leading up to the Feast of Pentecost, we focused some attention on the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the church calendar, the, the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Pentecost, the celebration of, uh, of Pentecost, really does not compare with many of the other key events in, in that calendar. You know, we, you think of Advent, you think of Christmas, you think of Easter. Often Pentecost is almost completely forgotten, sometimes eclipsed by cultural days and festivals like Mother's Day. I I sometimes suspect that that's a reflection of how we see and feel about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's sometimes been referred to as the forgotten member of the Godhead, the third person in third place, the poor relation of the Trinity. To, to many, many people, he's little more than a name on a religious creed or in a religious creed recited in liturgical services, but to all intents and purposes, practically quite unknown. In the Apostles' Creed, there is effectively one limited line that refers to him, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Beyond that shadowy confession of belief, it seems that we are largely ignorant of his personality and his ministry. And the poverty of that lack is apparent in powerless and uh, powerless churches that really are irrelevant in and to our world. To many people, he's a vague sort of influence, uh, perhaps akin to an impersonal force like electricity or lightning or magnetism. Those are forces that work, of course, without any, imp- any personal characteristics at all. Magnetism draws metal objects to itself without any reference to personal qualities such as love or joy or grief or sorrow. But the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force or influence. As we'll see over this study, he's presented in Scripture as a divine personality. Somebody has commented, and I I totally get the comment. They say, look, I I get the Father to a degree, and I can understand the Son, but to me the Holy Spirit is kind of a a gray blur. I think one of the reasons for that, of course, is it's easier to speak of the Father and Son, if only because of the familiar family imagery that's employed in those designations. But the Holy Spirit is different. He's outside the realm of our experience. How does one render the reality that is wind or or fire or breath or life? Images like dove or oil or, or rain are evocative, but they do little to reveal the face of a personality. And so as a result, the Holy Spirit, to many of us, remains somewhat anonymous. I I think there are a few people in church life who are actually a little fearful of this person called the Holy Spirit. Perhaps perhaps because we've been warned against or have heard stories about these weird holy rollers, these Pentecostal charismatic 
Christians that to most of us, you know, from the outside looking in are rather strange. I note that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the disciples, those who were looking on at what was transpiring, says, it says of them that they were both amazed on the one hand and perplexed on the other. The King James renders it, they were amazed and yet were in doubt. As I contemplated those words, the word amazed to me has somewhat of a positive connotation. It's a word that draws me somewhat deeper in to try and understand this thing that has been the source of amazement. But the word perplexed carries negative connotations. It has more of a turn-off quality, and actually it has that quality in the Greek language as well. They were drawn and repelled both at the same time. It's that exact combination that many people still today feel about the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church and in individuals' lives. We are drawn by a desire to know this mysterious member of the Godhead, and yet we can be totally nonplussed and even horrified with some stories that we hear about churches or individuals that have apparently been impacted by this person. Every move of God that I've ever read about, and over the years I've read lots about revival and moves in other places, and every move of God that I've had the privilege of being part of, I've noted those two responses. A drawing of amazement and yet a sense of being perplexed, somewhat in doubt, I'm, I'm struggling with what I'm seeing. I totally get those two responses. Even as a leader, in those times when we have watched the Holy Spirit be poured out in a significant way in the congregations that we've led, there have been those two feelings. A drawing in in, in, in the sense of what I co completely see and understand as being God and yet a re being repelled by behavior uh, that... that purports to be behavior influenced by the Spirit, but seems so excessive. I, I don't know about you, but, but I struggle with a sense of fanaticism. You know, I look on and, and when I see what I think is fanaticism, I, I am perplexed with that. I'm, I, I withdraw from that. I, I think it is a very real danger. Uh, it arises often when there is a divorce between Scripture and experience, where we put experiences so-called with the Spirit above the Scriptures, claiming that things that are not sanctioned by the Scripture or perhaps even prohibited by it are okay because it's the Holy Spirit that's doing it. Religious experience needs a good theology in the way that a traveler needs a good map. A traveler who has lots of enthusiasm but no map to travel with is uh, a, a dangerous person to do a journey with. However, there is a second danger that's the exact opposite of the first, and that's being, something satis being satisfied with something far less than the Scripture is actually offering to us. It's the danger of interpreting the scripture through the matrix of our inadequate experience, of reducing the scripture to a level of this is what I know, this is what I understand, this is what I feel comfortable with. And I suspect for most of us, it's the second danger that's greater than the first. 
Some of you have come from church backgrounds where virtually no place was given to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Others from backgrounds where you were actively taught against charismatic truths. There is a whole field of theology that's called cessationism. And it's the idea that the gifts, the manifestations of the Holy Spirit outlined in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 have actually ceased. They are no longer to be expected. They stopped with the apostolic age. Apart from being completely unscriptural as far as I'm concerned, that cessationist mindset actually becomes self-fulfilling. Failing to take seriously what the Bible sets forth as possibilities for us leads to an experiential deficit. A lack of or limited expectation actually reinforces our lack of experience. We say there aren't any gifts because we don't experience them. But the Bible doesn't teach that, and I think in terms of the danger of fanaticism at one end and fanatic uninvolvement at the other, uh, there is a middle path that we've got to traverse. I think a lot of people make the mistake of allowing our need for full understanding to dictate our obedience. In other words, if it doesn't make complete sense to me, I reserve the right to hold off my obedience. Now, in saying that, I'm not arguing for mindless obedience. I don't think the Bible requires that of us. I know that many people looking on at Pentecostals say, you know, they hang their minds on the hat post as they come into the door. When they get in the spirit, they're completely, you know, without thought. And, and I'm not... I'm not one of those kinds of people that believes that or requires that. I don't think the Bible requires that. The Bible tells us that we should love God with all of our mind. However, I do want to say, if you, if you are going to make complete understanding the sole arbitrator of your obedience, then you will hit a wall sooner or later. There are some things and some times and some demands where we are called to move in obedience without full understanding. In fact, Anselm of Canterbury, great church father, once said this. He said, I believe in order that I might understand. Most of us want to reverse that and do it the other way around. For example, if I don't understand how speaking in tongues works and why it's required, I'm not going to go near it. And a lot of people stand off in terms of an obedient response because they don't fully understand. Now, listen, there are many things that we can learn from the scriptures about the benefits of and the, the, the reasonableness concerning speaking in tongues. But complete understanding is probably going to elude you. Now, I've been speaking in tongues for 40 years, and I still find mystery there. But I can tell you and testify of the incredible benefits. And I can understand why Paul would say to his congregations, I wish that you all spoke with tongues. I wish that you were all a speaking in tongues people, is the way that is rendered. And on another occasion, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. You, you may not understand this, but you can enjoy the benefits without full understanding. Let me, let me ask you something. If you'd have used that same reasoning regarding becoming a Christian, I suggest you still wouldn't be one. If you waited to comprehend fully the marvels of atonement before you entered in, how many of you would have entered in? Yeah, exactly as I thought. 
Not one of us. You can still benefit from obedience even when full understanding eludes you. Now again, I'm not saying put your mind on the side. We are to be engaged in loving God with everything that we have. But we're dealing about mystery. We're dealing with mystery. And there will be some things in terms of understanding that elude you. There are times when understanding can wait, but obedience can't. Over the next few weeks, we're going to explore the ministry and person of the Holy Spirit and really try and open up our hearts to anything that he'd want to do among us. So I wondered that it might be really good to start with Augustine's famous prayer when he said this. He said, O Holy Spirit, descend plentifully into my heart. Enlighten the dark corners of this neglected dwelling and scatter there thy cheerful beams. That's our prayer. Come into this neglected dwelling, this one that one, this one, us corporately. Fill the dark corners of that neglected dwelling. Let your life come. Now, again, I want, I want to just reiterate this morning, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not merely some kind of presence. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit is a divine person in fellowship with, but distinct from, Father and Son. Now, I've, I've previously done a series, I think maybe it was last year, on the, the Trinity, and I don't plan to repeat what I said there. However, let me simply say this. As Christians, we worship one God, eternal, uncre uncreated, incomprehensible, there is one God. Christians are not tritheists or polytheists. We don't worship three gods, a Father God, a Son God, and a Holy Spirit God. We are monotheists. Neither are we what's sometimes referred to as modalists, those people who believe that there is one God, but that he appears in three different modes, a bit like taking off one hat and putting on another. Sometimes he appears in the father mode, sometimes in the spirit mode. We are neither tritheists or modalists. We are monotheists. We believe in one God, but the scripture reveals God's nature as internally complex consisting of a fellowship or a community of three divine persons within the one essence of God. Yes, it's mysterious. Can you fully understand it? No. It's a, it comes to us by revelation. And in that revelation, we see the Holy Spirit as a divine person, co-equal, co-eternal, along with Father and Son. He's infinite, he's eternal, he's almighty God. He shares the attributes of deity. Let's have a look at some scriptural passages. First of all, the scripture just plain states he is God. If you look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, this is in the early church. Uh, it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It says, a man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, conniving with him in this, sold a piece of land secretly, kept part of the price for himself, and then brought the rest to the apostles and made an offering of it. Peter said, Ananias, how did, the, how did Satan get you to lie to the Holy Spirit? You'll notice that that's underscored and italicized. And secretly keep back part of the price of the field. Before you sold it, it was all yours. And after you sold it, the money was yours to do with as you wished. So what got you to pull a trick like this? You didn't lie to men, but to God. Now the first italicized underscored portion says you lied to the Holy Spirit. The second says you lied to God. One and the same thing. Lying to the Holy Spirit in this passage is equivalent to lying to God. Peter fully understands that this 
spirit, this divine, this Holy Spirit is, is God. We see in another passage that he is eternal in nature. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Listen, only God is eternal. And here it specifically states that the Holy Spirit is eternal. He's the three omnis. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. We see that in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, where the Holy Spirit is to come upon the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Verse 37, nothing you see is impossible with God. This Spirit that's about to overpower you can do all things. He's omnipotent. He's not only omnipotent, he's, he's uh, omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 says, But God has, through the Spirit, let us share his secret. For nothing is hidden from the Spirit, not even the deep wisdom of God. So he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's always present, omnipresent. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10. Is there any place I can, avoid, uh, I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I, fl if I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all present. And then there are plenty of other passages in the scripture. We're not looking at them all by any means, but the, uh, the things like the baptismal formula of Matthew chapter 18, uh, 28, verse 19, where Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, there's the benediction of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Ghost, be with you all. We see really clearly, without going into too much detail, that the scripture shows the Holy Spirit is one of the divine community, the one God, the one essence, the three personalities. It's, it's plain from those scriptures. Not only that, but we see clearly from the scripture that he exhibits all the characteristics of personality. He's not just some vague sort of outflowing of the Godhead. He is a person. We see from the passage I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that he knows things. Only a person, only a personality can know things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 11, we see that he exercises volition. He wills certain things. The manifestations of the Holy Spirit are given to various people as the Spirit wills. We see that he thinks and he purposes. Romans chapter 8 talks about the mind of the Spirit. J.B. Phillips translates that the Spirit's intention, or another has the Spirit's desire. Desire, intentions, purposes are all attributes that we associate with personalities. He exhibits a personality's emotional responses. The Bible says that he loves in Romans chapter 15, verse 30. I have one request, Paul says, dear friends, pray for me, pray strenuously with and for me to God the Father through the power of our Master Jesus, through the love of the Spirit. The Bible says that he can be grieved in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Don't 
give grief to the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were marked for the day of salvation. Listen, it's impossible for some kind of emanation or force to be grieved. Only a person can be grieved. And for grief to be real and present, it's really only real and present when there's love there. Grief is is a corollary or, or, or flows from a place where there is love. He speaks. In Acts chapter 8, verse 29, he says to Philip, go near, join yourself to the chariot. The Spirit speaks to Philip. It's not just that he spoke, but that he speaks. He's a real person. Listen, over the last couple of years, I think probably the prayer that I've prayed most, it's just rested on my heart. So you go through seasons where, where you pray, you know, there's something on your heart that you just you can't get away from. And whenever you find yourself in prayer, you find yourself just going along those lines. And for about the past two years, I would say, the, the, the prayer that's on my heart is, Lord, that I would be your friend and know your favor. Could I, could I be your friend? It's something that drives me. I want to be the Holy Spirit's friend. I often say to him in those early mornings when I'm sitting quietly, Lord, I don't know how to be a good friend. I don't know what it means to be a good friend to you, but I want to. Would you show me what it means to be a good friend to you? Holy Spirit, could I be your friend? And part of friendship is sitting down and talking. We'll unpack this as we go, but the Holy Spirit didn't just speak historically. Some people have locked up the Spirit's voice in the, in the scriptures, but Yes, of course he inspired the scriptures, but he speaks now. Now, some people get freaked out by that. It's, oh, you know, what are you trying to do, write another Bible? No, of course I'm not trying to write another Bible. What he will speak to you in the present will always be rooted in and confirmed by the scriptures. He's not going to say one thing in the scripture and then another thing to you personally. Sometimes you hear people say that. Well, the Holy Spirit told me to do this, and you think that's not in the word. And when you raise it with them, you know, they, they, they prickle up like a porcupine. So oh, I know what God spoke to me. I just want to say to you, look, I don't think it was God. I don't know what kind of voice you're listening to, but it doesn't agree with the scriptures. But don't be frightened of them speaking. Friends speak. I want to hear his voice. And every now and then, you know, there are times when I can look back and say, wow, that, that, you really spoke to me, Lord. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Now, I have to be honest and say there are some times when I perhaps would rather he didn't speak because the Bible does say that he will convict you of sin, that he will say, wrong. You know, I was telling the people at Form the other day, a couple of months back, I was doing something. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but... I, I did something that had a little bit of a twist on it. I, I didn't want Karen to know what I was doing. It wasn't really bad, you know, don't let your mind go. But I just thought, ah, she doesn't need to know that. And so I, I just did this little maneuver and, and, and I could just move along without her knowing what I had just done. Except that the Holy Spirit obviously wasn't pleased with that. And in the middle of me doing it, he said, I want you to tell her what you've done clear as a bell. There's probably one other time in my life I heard the voice so clear. So clear that I almost thought was that audible. The other time I've told you the story many times, I was driving home 
from here and a car passed me and a voice clearly said to me in a very unspiritual moment, because the maneuver of passing was a really dangerous one. And I was being in my least spiritual. In fact, I think I yelled something at the driver that I won't repeat. And right at that moment, this voice, just a thought so clear said, that car's, slow, that car's stolen. Well, those of you who know the story, I, I followed that up and the car was stolen. They caught, they caught the young guys who stole the car later that afternoon because I'd rung the police and reported in a stolen car. They later rang me back that afternoon and said, uh, thank you for helping us, so appreciative of your input. And we caught the guys and they were very surprised. And then they asked the question that I was really hoping they wouldn't ask. said, how did you know it was stolen? And I said, officer, I don't think you'd believe me if I told you. He said, oh, Mr. Barry, my pen is poised. <laughs> Seriously, that's what he said, quote. And so I kind of mumbled through trying to tell him the untellable, and at the end there was just this silence, you know, just absolute silence. And I, I thought, have we been disconnected? And then there was a sort of a shuffling at the other end, and uh, uh, okay, Mr. Barry, thank you, bye. <laughs> It was, it was like that this time. I want you to tell her what you just did. <laughs> how, how about you tell her? <laughs> She's Irish. She's redheaded. <laughs> Tendency to violence. <laughs> That's why they sit together, this safety in numbers. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> anyway, long, long story short, I, I sat Karen down and exp explained what I'd done. There are times when you might not want to hear his voice. But if you've got a real friend, there are times when you're doing silly, self-destructive things and he's going to stop you. It's called conviction. You, you, we want a relationship with this one. And he speaks. Not just spoke, he speaks. And we want to cultivate that. It's possible to resist him. I could have said, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that. I could have just said, I'm sorry, I'm not. The thing is, when you quieten his voice, when you say no, it's like an opaque film goes across a window. And you can say no, 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 and every time you do, an opaque film goes until finally there's no more light. I don't want to live in the dark, I want to live in the light, which requires when he speaks, I have to respond. There are times when he says, I want you to go back and set that right. That wasn't right. You didn't speak in the right tone. You didn't do that well. I want you to sort that and you go back. Now, you can resist him if you want to, but why would you want to? This is a relationship that I long for, I covet. I want his friendship and his favor and I hope you do too. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna explore this together, okay? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.